scripture reading is from Nehemiah chapter 1. First, I'm going to read in Chinese Mandarin and then in English. Hajadiada 并且耶路撒冷的城墙拆毁承认我们以色列人向你所犯的罪你们被赶散的人虽在天涯the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of his living, the twelfth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned him about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days, I moaned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. May your ear be attentive and may your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very weakly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if you exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants, 
and your people, who you are redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in uh, revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of God. Thanks, C.E. It's tempting for me to note that you have, when you read Chinese, a slight American accent that you've developed. That's an old joke for me. People who were speaking in their mother tongue, I think it's fine. I'm just fiddling. <laughs> One of those days when all the, uh, everything seems to kind of be a little bit off in terms of details and structures and planning. For example, apparently the PowerPoint slides for the sermon did not get uploaded. It does work now. Huh. Let's see. Well, actually, I can't say anything now because I'm not supposed to do it quite yet. You have to remain in tension as I get to the point where we see if it actually works. So let's, uh, let's do this thing. I don't know. Did anybody watch America's Toughest Jobs? Anybody ever hear of that? Apparently, it only lasted for one season. Some of you did not. I guess the idea was that uh, a crew of individuals, you know, a certain number, maybe there were 20 people, uh, went to work America's toughest jobs. They do this one week at a time. And then a little bit like Survivor style, if you performed poorly, you were voted off. And then it kept going down to there was one person left. And they were, they were really, really difficult jobs. Here are some of them, for example. I guess the first episode was crab fishing. And then they did trucking in uh, Alaska, gold digging, oil drilling, bullfighting. They were on a bridge, working a crew on, on a bridge, logging. Apparently, they did a mountain rescue as well. And they did all of these difficult jobs. And they've just heard this scripture read, and it ended with, I was cupbearer to the king. That's a job, right? And what did the cupbearer of the king do? He sampled wine for the king. Does that sound like a difficult job to you? <laughs> that was actually what he did, was take wine and drink it and make sure that the king's wine was okay to, to drink. Wine tasting. Now, it's not quite as glamorous as it seems. And to give it a little bit of context, let's see if this works. And... Yes, there it is. Prepare to be amazed. <laughs> so just to give you a little bit of history, in 722 B.C., Israel fell to Assyria. And Israel was the ten northern tribes. There were ten tribes, kind of collectively called Israel. But over time, the ten northern tribes came to be known as Israel. And the southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were known as as Judah and the northern tribes and in 722 as a result of ongoing sin and lack of repentance and disobeying what God had said were carted off into exile and Judah the southern tribes survived for a little while longer and then in 586 BC they fell this time to a new kingdom that had arisen and that kingdom was Babylon you'll recognize that name if you're a student of the Bible. 
Ezra, which is just before the book of Nehemiah, documents the initial return and the rebuilding of the walls of, of Jerusalem. Um, and from the close of its pages in 458 BC, we open up the pages of Nehemiah here and we find ourselves in the spring of 445 BC. And that's the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. So if you were to read Ezra and Nehemiah, they're really treated as kind of one book, Ezra, Nehemiah, but you close Ezra and then it says like maybe in a TV show 12 years later. That's exactly what happens. It's a dozen years later after Ezra, then we get this glimpse of Nehemiah. Ezra had gone back and started rebuilding the walls, made some progress, but discouragement and opposition brought it to an end. And here then we have Nehemiah who inherits that history. And he's living in Susa, if you're looking there at uh, these verses. It's a winter resort for Persian kings on the west side of what would be modern-day Iran. And his main job, as we said earlier, was to sip wine. So he's in a high-income place with Persian kings tasting wine, and he spends his entire day doing this for the man who was the person in the greatest position of power in the entire kingdom. But like I said, it's not quite as glamorous as it seems. Why was he tasting wine? Why would he need to do that? Yeah, because there was a tradition of people getting assassinated. And one of the ways they would do that is poison the wine. So if you think about America's toughest jobs, okay, how about this? Your job all day long is to sip something that might kill you. And it's not even just like hypothetical. It's happened recently so they're looking for some guy who's going to taste those things to make sure that the king is safe from that form of assassination of course there were other ways to get at people too but his main job was to make sure it wasn't through poison so if you put yourself into his mindset that's a pretty dangerous job literally every sip you take could be your last and as wonderful as that wine may have been, it was probably fantastic. It could be the taste of death for him. So it's not very glamorous. Um, you know, he did it as a safeguard as assassination, against assassination, but he's also doing it as an exile. He and his people, as we saw, have been carted off, and they're growing up in a culture that's not their own. They're having to learn a language that's not their own mother tongue, and they're having to serve in positions where they probably didn't have much choice at all. In fact, some document this as a position of slavery. Granted, somebody who would be trustworthy, not everybody would be in this position, but he had no rights. He was just doing what he was told he had to do. That's a dangerous job, a dangerous position. And the servants here in, in different kingdoms treated different ways. So in the, the Persian kings, their approach when they overtook a kingdom was to let the people continue to practice their religious uh, practices and some of their cultural traditions. But the way they leveraged their power was through uh, high taxation. So a lot of these people were greatly impoverished or they would work for them and then take everything that they had earned. So the work environment was not exactly, you know, on the list of the Cincinnati Enquirer's best places to work 
in 444 BC, Persian times version, I suppose. And the other thing is he couldn't allow his emotions, how he was feeling out in his workplace. Because if he did, as you'll see, if he was sad in the presence of the king, that could say execution immediately as well. You had to pretend you were something entirely different. You had to be happy. You had to make sure you just got down to brass tacks and did your job. So you couldn't really express how you actually felt. And all of that's working together when we open up Nehemiah chapter 1 and start reading this. A trusted character serving the most powerful position in the kingdom. And it's interesting because he's not raising a militia. You know, I mean, he's in exile and he longs to get back home. But he's doing what maybe Jeremiah had said. You know, Jeremiah in Lamentations, also talking about the exile. It could be that he had heard one of Jeremiah's messages. And one of the things Jeremiah said is when you're in exile, you seek the peace of the city. You know, you're, you're, you're serving where God has put you. And yes, it's consequential, but this is where you are. The shalom... The, the total health of the city, the place where God has put you. You don't like where you're working. You don't like the people that you're working with. And you feel like your job is like drinking poison. Okay, you kind of identify with Nehemiah a little bit here. And his task then was to do his job well, even though everything around him seemed to be falling apart. But there's not just a lack of peace where he is. There's a lack of peace back home. And verse 2 tells us that one of his brothers has come back from a trip to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah asks how things are going there. And they report in verse 3, not anything very fantastic. He's disturbed by this. Those who survived the exile are back in the province. They're back in the province. They're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem's broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And the Hebrew word for great trouble is ra'ah. It's the strongest word apparently in Hebrew for disaster, calamity, and misery. How are things back home in the place where we all long to, to be that showed some promise? It's, it's disastrous. There's, there's trouble everywhere we look. People are in misery. And in, in fact, that second word, disgrace, harpei, means shame and insult. The people are experiencing shame. And in a culture that valued honor, these people have been targeted as shame bearers. They are being insulted. They are being mocked. They are being made fun of. And the walls of Jerusalem itself that had begun to be rebuilt apparently had been burned down with fire and everything that they'd put their hopes on was rubble. All their dreams are dashed. Nehemiah has never been to his hometown. He's just heard stories, you know, but from people who've been there before. And obviously in his heart, he wants to see his people and his place thrive and flourish and hope that one day he can go back and see it, maybe be a part. He's faithfully serving where he is, but things are not as they should be. And when he hears this report, we see how he responds. That's the context for his response what does he do in verse 4? He sits down and he weeps. Last night we had the mental health and faith seminar, which I thought was fantastic content and really great. We should do a round two for those of you who weren't able to join. It was really, really well done by Ashley and Michelle. 
And Ashley made a comment that made me remember in the Jewish tradition, when there's a death or some mourning, they do it a lot better than most Americans do. Um, I'm white, in case you didn't catch that. And I'm also American, too. And so I, I'm sort of a product. There's some personality thing there, too, of, of an, a desire for entertainment. I just want to be entertained and, and happy. And I know not everybody is the same way there because some of you have more melancholic personalities. I'm sanguine. I just want to be happy all the time. Morning's tough for me. But in the Jewish tradition, for a month you'll sit down, dress in the colors of sadness and weep and cry for a month. You know, Job, when he lost all this stuff, his friends, as you know, did a great job in, in responding. For seven days, they sat down, didn't say anything. And as you know, the trouble began when they opened up their mouths and started trying to explain theologically why he was probably suffering the way that he was. And Nehemiah, when he gets bad news, it's really tearing him apart. He sits down and he weeps. In our culture, again, too, often, guys, we don't cry, right? That's a sign of weakness. Well, Nehemiah, who we're going to see, rebuilt the foundations of Jerusalem and led this amazing charge, cries. And by the way, John eleven thirty five says what? Jesus wept. Oh, Jesus wept? You're cooler than Jesus, I know. <laughs> we're emotional beings, and sadness sometimes, some of us, for some, you know, various reasons, maybe can't just produce that. I get it. But he sits down and weeps because he's undone. Things are not as they should be, right? They're not right. Something is wrong. And he acknowledges that. He sits down and he weeps. For some days he mourns and he fasts and he prays. He doesn't eat, right? And sometimes that happens when you're filled with grief and sorrow. You're not even hungry. But he may be a conscious decision, and we've encouraged ourselves on those first Sundays even to, to fast because it's a sign of intensity and urgency and calling out to God, and he prays to the God of heaven. That is his response. The dates between chapters 1 and 2 are about five months apart, interestingly enough. And we have that because it's the month of Kislev and then the, a new month in, in chapter 2 when we get to next week as well. So what we see in chapter 1 is his regular activity for about half a year before he has any opportunity to tell the king what's going on. One commentator notes, at this point it was not at all clear to him whether God would call him to do anything more than pray. That's all we know at this, at this point. He's just, he's undone, and so he prays. It is doubtful that Nehemiah had any inkling that he would be making the long and difficult journey to Jerusalem. How could he? He was a slave to the Persian king. One suggestion of discontentment to the king with his current circumstances, and he could lose his life or find himself in some dark prison in Susa. So what we see here then is someone who is who's waiting on the Lord. He has to. He's forced to do that. And it takes the form of prayer. And then we see all throughout scripture that really praying is an active form of waiting. And for Nehemiah, it's his first response. Not his last response. 
And that's something that I think is important to us as a church and to, as a culture as well. When he hears this and he's undone, he sits down and he weeps and he begins to pray. And this is his regular activity. And this is one of nine recorded prayers in the book of Nehemiah. So this wasn't just one and done. He goes on and on. You know, we've challenged ourselves to take a sip. Start in prayer as a church. And I do think it's difficult, as I said before, too, when the months kind of go on to keep at this. And he was praying for upwards of six months before he had a chance to say anything in this book. And we cannot give up praying as well. And so let's start in prayer. J.I. Packer notes, Nehemiah's walk with God was saturated with his praying. And I just love that imagery. Our lives being saturated with prayer, it becomes kind of the normal activity in the first response. You know, first responders, right? They're the ones who get there first and they do their thing. This is our first response. His life saturated with praying, praying of the truest and purest kind, namely the sort of praying that is always seeking to clarify its own vision of who and what God is and to celebrate his reality in constant adoration and to rethink in his presence such needs and requests as one is, as one is bringing to him. So that the stating of them becomes a specifying of hallowed be thy name, thy will be done, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. A little tie in there to our sermon on the series mount. That he's saying that when we pray, that's the focus of it as well. And to unpack that a little bit, we see the content of Nehemiah's prayer. In, in verse 5, we see where he begins by saying, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, so, in other words, when Nehemiah begins praying, he notes that God is faithful. And as you look at this, he's faithful to his character. He's going to be who he said he was going to be. He's faithful to his people. I haven't abandoned you. And he's faithful to his promises. I'm making good on my word. And, and Nehemiah is appealing to that in the context of prayer. The great and awesome God. That's kind of a remarkable context, isn't it? Again, if you think about where Nehemiah is, and he starts off by saying, God, you are great and awesome. Can you remember again where he is in a job where he might die at any moment, exiled away from the people that he wants to identify with, news that all of his hopes and dreams of a, a rebuilt Jerusalem have come to be dashed, and he starts by saying, God, you're great and awesome. Now, circumstantially, it would be understandable if you start out by saying, God, do you know anything that's going on right now? Have you looked at the misery of all this stuff? And, and that happens in Scripture, too. But here we see Nehemiah recognizing God for who he is. That's the starting point and the launching pad for his prayer. You are great and awesome. You're a faithful God. The one who keeps his covenant of love with those who obey him. And that faithfulness cuts both ways. If God says, and he said this all, uh, leading up to this point too, look, here, you're my people, I'm your God, and I've done all the hard work, 
and here's how you walk with me. And they continue just going astray. And God had told them in his faithfulness, if he's faithful and true, not only is he faithful to the, the blessings, but he's faithful to the curses, to the, the, what happens with disobedience. And it's being noted even in this passage as well. Look at verses 8 and 9. Remember the instruction that you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, <coughs> I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, and even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. And this is what they were experiencing, God's faithfulness. He said, if you're, un if you're unfaithful, then there are consequences that come and you'll be scattered. This land flowing with milk and honey, the the culmination of all those promises given to Moses will be taken away from you. And that's part of God's, God's faithfulness. He's true to his word. But in his faithfulness, he always provides a way back as well. And he's done that even in this text. Here's the consequence. You're in exile. But, but if you respond, I will call you back. It doesn't matter how far you go. I'm going to gather you back to the place that is called by my name. His faithfulness always creates a pathway for return. I have a, a friend from years ago who used to travel all around the world and had the chance to speak to people from all the nations, tribes, people, and tongue. I mean, not all of them, but a lot of them in different places. And at least by his report, when he would give messages, he would often focus on the pa parable of the prodigal son. He said, for some reason, that, that parable seemed to resonate with a lot of different cultures. And you know the story of somebody who had a father and two sons, and one of the sons was tired of living in dad's home, so said, give me my inheritance now in advance. I'm out of this place, and he runs away. Uh, and he spends it on wild living, and before you know it, all of his friends are gone because he's reaching into his pockets, and all of a sudden there isn't any money left. And so he ends up serving in the lowest of positions for somebody of that day, feeding slop to pigs. And he looks at his life, and all of a sudden he's like, how did I get here? I'm, he's so undone with how he's mistreated everything, and now he's just full of shame and ridicule. And he starts thinking, Man, I wish I could go back to my dad's house. I wish I could go back to a place where at least I had some measure of, of hope and, and, and somebody cared for me in a safe place. And he wonders, will my dad receive me back? Because he probably knows if the tables were turned, he wouldn't. And, and you know the story. He says, I'm going to go back and just ask my dad if I can be a servant in the house and the father's been looking for him the whole time and sees the son coming and and rushes to him and envelops him in his arms he said what was lost is found and he celebrates the return of his son it's a picture of God's love for us and our reminder of our imperfect love because a lot of times I don't know if that's your storyline you might say see I told you so when they come back I mean maybe underneath that you're thinking yeah you got what you deserved right on some level, maybe it's a side conversation with the spouse later. But that's not exactly what God's doing here. He's rushing, enveloping the one who deserved to be treated as a slave, as an outcast, 
and saying, I'm embracing you as my own. And this is a picture of how God interacts with his people and those who are his own. There certainly were some consequences of that child's choices, but when he turns back to the father, what he finds is an embracing grasp, enveloping him in the midst of his shame. I love you. And here, Nehemiah is appealing to God in the same way. Recognizing that God has created a pathway back. And in, in verse 6, we read more of the prayer's content as well. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying. Servant eight times in, verse, in chapter 1. Before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Day and night, there's this persistent coming back. But notice how he's appealing to God that, God, I know you hear, and I know you see. And so I'm going to appeal to that and say, would your ear be attentive, your eyes open to the plight that we have? You know, it's not the, the first time that we hear language like this about God being a God who hears and a God who sees. And even when others may not. You know, maybe nations aren't seeing what's going on in Nehemiah's context, perhaps, or friends or relatives, but God does. You remember Hagar, who was outcast, uh, thrown into the wilderness and treated as just an object of scorn and dismay, and everybody's abandoned her. And then God shows up, and she calls out to the one who sees. He says, you are the God who sees. You're the God who hears. Here's a person who is despised and alone. Who sees? Who knows? God does. It's a beautiful story of God's attentiveness. God is faithful. He sees. He hears. In verse 6, there's a shift from God to the people. God is faithful, but his people have not been. And in verses 6 through 7, we hear this kind of raw confession that's multi-layered. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. I don't know if this isn't working now, but I keep clicking and nothing is happening. So, there it is. <laughs> and, you know, that I, uh, these verses are, hit me hard, uh, kind, of, kind of in, in the gut a little bit. You know, it's, he's admitting sin, and whose sin is he admitting? He's admitting his own sin, right? Who, else, who else's sin is he admitting? Who? Israel's sin, it's a whole stinking nation, right? The sin of his nation. Who else? His father's. Since gener this is personal confession of sin. It's corporate confession of sin. It's generational confession of sin. And ne Nehemiah spent some time saying, and look, again, most of us, in, in our, at least in American context, and especially 
from, from where, where I come from, too, it's all individual. It's like, I, I'm going to confess my sins. And that's great. But the Bible doesn't stop there in so many of these examples. At least Nehemiah doesn't. He says, I'm going to confess my sins. And then I'm going to confess the sins of my nation and the sins of my ancestors, those who have gone before me. Have you ever tried doing that? It's really uncomfortable. <laughs> and it, it also feels unfair. I didn't do that. It's so much easier to confess my own sins. Well, it's hard to confess my own sins. But it's a lot easier to confess my sins than it is to confess the sins of, say, my nation. Or certainly of those who have gone before me as well. But this is what Nehemiah is doing. And so if we look at prayers and call them kind of model prayers, which this seems to be, then we need to consider that it is very appropriate to feel the weight of our sins. Yes, individually, but also corporately and generationally. And that is, that is challenging to do. You know, uh, a couple of years ago, maybe now, three, I don't know, when we did an event down at Washington Park through the Mosaics Cincy Network. Um, and, and, you know, there were marches going on and uh, everything was happening. And we said, well, what would, I, what would it look like to protest like Christians, to be distinctive, to, 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 to lament like the people of God, um, and to pray? And so we imagined what that might look like. And I know some, some of you were, were down there. I, I, I know we, we went down and we heard some people talking and different individuals getting up from uh, different uh, ethnic backgrounds and different experiences and, and kind of using the moment to, to call us. And one, one of the guys, a white pastor, got up and was challenging all, everybody who was there who was white to take the knee and to repent of their personal sins and also the sins of their fathers for racism. Okay. Now that, that right there, it's going to divide some people in that park, I can guarantee you, right away, too. And what I, what I noticed that time, and I didn't ask Eric if I could say this in advance, but Eric Yulianto, okay, he's Indonesian, was one of the first people to take the knee. I said, this guy's just calling white dudes out right now to confess sins. And, you know, it was a little hard for me, but I, I did it. And I'm like, I, I'm still trying to grapple with what that looks like and what that means. But afterwards, I'm like, Eric, you're not white. What are you doing? And, and, and his, his point was, hey, look, as an Asian, for me, it's pretty easy for me to stand on the sidelines in this white and black controversy. But I realize I can't do that. So he, well, I'm telling you, I took note, one of the first people to bend the knee was an Indonesian man willing to confess sins of racism in the white and black controversy. Now, I'll tell you what, Eric, that's terribly disarming. <laughs> for, for those of us who have all kinds of things come up in our hearts and make it other issues, too, to say, yeah, let's be quick to confess and repent. Let's recognize the deep pain and our own complicity in it, even if it's not mine. That's hard. Nehemiah did it. He was quick to do it. And so he did it. The Times of London invited authors to answer the question back in like the 50s, I think it was, what is wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton, some of you recognize that name, replied, dear sirs, I am. 
Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. And that is the starting point, right? But it doesn't end there. It goes out. And Nehemiah is going to be really raw in his confession and aware that he needs to, he needs to just get it all out there. And he does that. And by the way, when, when we talk about issues like a, of confession and we're kind of getting at the idea of repentance, what does that really look like? Um, yeah, you admit things that, are, things that are wrong, but then you also receive forgiveness. Um, there's, a, there's a worldly sorrow when you're experiencing the weight of sin that leads to death and the godly sorrow that leads to life. If you have embraced forgiveness offered by Christ once for all, then you cannot bear the weight of your own sin. It's just you're not designed to do that. It will crush you, shame, guilt, a sense that you can't make everything right and you can't. You can do what you can do, but you can't do everything. You're limited in capacity. So when Nehemiah prays, even in that respect, he's praying to the God of heaven because there's so much he can do that we never can. And he's going to do what he can do, but it is wildly limited to his place and his time. Repentance is confession, but then also receiving forgiveness and then redirection, going in a new way. And he's praying that he would do that, his people would do that. And probably when he thinks generationally, if he had kids for the same. You know, Job did that too, offered sacrifices for his kids. He's like, I'm concerned about them. So, a couple of takeaways from this. One thing is this. If you feel overwhelmed, like you cannot control outcomes, you're not alone. <laughs> if you feel like your life is out of control and there's so little you can do to right the ship, this is exactly what Nehemiah was experiencing. Everything he dreamed of is in, in shambles. What hope does he have in his life? Except for the next sip might be death. So you're not alone. I mean, there's, Scripture's littered with examples of people who are really struggling profoundly with, how, with dashed hopes and dreams and things didn't go according to plan. So you're not alone. There's others who have experienced that. And the other thing is maybe kind of an obvious statement. God is God. You are not God. And man is man. I mean, he starts this prayer with, he's praying to the God of heaven. He sits enthroned in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. And it, it ends in, in verse 11, if you noted, the, uh, noted this, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I mean, yeah, he's a king. He's got kind of his life in his hands. He's just a man, though. He's not the God of heaven. He's praying to the God of heaven to give him success with this man. God holds the hearts of the princes even in his hands. I think of Psalm 90 a lot. I've done this before even at funerals where you talk about from everlasting to everlasting. God, you know, Moses, the only psalm he wrote he talks about the everlasting nature of God and contrasts him with man, how quickly man is gone, how quickly man is forgotten. 
but from everlasting to everlasting God. We sing that. You are the everlasting God. He doesn't grow faint or weary. He just, he always is, he always has been, he always will be from generation to generation to generation. The same God we're talking about today is the same one Nehemiah was praying to in 45 B.C. or 458 B.C. I can't remember the date right now. It was a long time ago, and it's the same God. The same God who spoke the universe into existence and flung the galaxies to the farthest place is the same God who right now, and I'm convinced of this date, 2022, <laughs> April 10th, is here in our midst. And we're opening up his word. And he's the God of heaven. So remember, if you feel overwhelmed, and especially if you're in something where it seems like you can't control it, God is God. Man is man. He always will be. And then finally, a phrase we've used before, and just a reminder, the story isn't over yet. I mean, Nehemiah 1, there's a Nehemiah 2. But it takes five months to get there. And Nehemiah had to remember during that time as he's praying and he's calling out to God and he's confessing and he's weeping and he's mourning and he's fasting. He's got to stake his claim and the story isn't over yet. For my people back in Jerusalem or for me. And, and the good news, of course, of the gospel and the anticipation of Easter is that even when you've breathed your last, the story isn't over yet. In fact, it's just beginning. That's the hope that you have if you're in Christ, I mean, Nehemiah's hope as he's looking forward to a day of deliverance, it's just looking forward to that day when Christ comes and says, the kingdom of God is here, and you're looking at him. And then when he bore the sins on the cross, and it seemed like the darkest day in humanity it was, but he burst forth from the grave to give new life as a first fruits, a guarantee of what is to come. You breathe your last, it's not the end. Not if you're in Christ. And there will be a time then we know when that happens, when we don't have to offer these kind of prayers anymore. There's no more mourning or weeping and fasting. It's feasting and celebrating for an eternity in the presence of Christ. That's what I'm looking forward to. So the story isn't over yet, kind of like in your own life, sort of in, a, in circumstances now. But even when you breathe your last, it's not done. In fact, it's just beginning on a completely new, awesome level but only if you're in Christ. That's the message of the Bible, at least, that the only hope that we have is found in Christ, who overcame the grave, who took on that sin, and by the way, served, had the greatest and most unjust thing happen to him. All of our sins transferred onto him. How about that for corporate and generational injustice? All on Christ, once for all, if it, if, it, if it frustrates you to think of that, hallelujah that Christ went through with it on our behalf. He's our federal head. He, he took it all on. Adam's sin on us. First Adam failed, second Adam succeeded. And when we open up the book of Nehemiah, then we start getting a sense of the realities that are unpacked throughout God's redemptive story. And I think the anticipation of Easter as well. When we will be all cupbearers to the true king, right?
But this king took the poison for us. See the reverse? Isn't that beautiful? We're not taking poison to make sure he's okay. He took the poison for us to make sure we are. Hallelujah. <laughs> and I hope you can say, sign me up for that. Because the story isn't over yet for sure. Father, I do pray for our own hearts. Thank you for the testimony offered to us in the book of Nehemiah and the wonderful riches that you have in your word. Humble us. Make us willing to confess our own sins. But even the corporate nature of sins that we bear. And that may be new. I know it is for me. It's, it's a challenging prospect. But we want to lean into that in a way that's honoring to your word but also in a way that creates a pathway for uh, deeper healing that probably won't come without it. We thank you, too, for Christ, who bore on our, took on our sin and knew it was a tough cup to drink, the cup of God's wrath that he drank to the bottom on our behalf so that we who are in Christ, who have said yes to Jesus, who trust in him may never have to drink that cup of wrath because it's finished. And we thank you for that as we go through this Holy Week. Help us to be more in tune with that and aware of what Christ took on for us on our behalf. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.